Good morning, Grace Life. It's to those who fail and need strength. And man, that's me every single day. How many people in here failed and need strength today? Oh, amen. Now we're being honest. That's great. All right, man. We got a Sunday morning. Everybody's going to be honest today. That's great. My name's Tommy. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to, to gather with you today and jump back into Romans chapter 9. And we're looking at Romans 9 through 11 today. This is an overview. A lot of people feel challenged by the doctrines that are presented in these three chapters. And so we're, we're, we're wading into it slowly. I felt like it would be good to give an introduction to some of the things Paul's going to talk about. And uh, today's message is entitled Rules of Engagement. And it's less about rules. Uh, here are the rules for how you talk about, think about, interact with, discuss, and apply the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And it's more a barometer test than rules. It's how do we know we're thinking about the truths that, that Paul presents here in the right way? How do we know that we're thinking about them in a way that pleases God and that's helpful and that's biblical? So that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, I'm going to pray. And before I do, um, this is all out of order. You shouldn't do this. But I, I, I wanted to do one announcement first. Does anybody know what next Sunday is for Grace Life? It's, it's a party. That's right. Hopefully it's a party every Sunday, the right kind of party, you know. What's that? Yes, it is, it is that too. It's a piting contest, uh, and I'm going to destroy the competition. Um, this, this coming Sunday, next Sunday, is our eighth anniversary celebration. It's a few weeks away from the actual date we launched, which was January 4th, 2015, eight years ago. And it's also a fifth Sunday, so that means it's a family-style worship. We're usually outside. We're going to be inside this Sunday because we have some things we want to do that require the PowerPoint, and we just thought it would be good to get everybody inside. Weather's kind of unpredictable right now. So, uh, but here's the thing I wanted to announce about that, besides all the amazing things, that you should come. It's a free lunch from Tijuana Flats. It's going to be catered. We're going to celebrate, and we're going to thank Jesus for planting this church for creating this church. A church is not a place, it's, a, it's people filled with God's spirit, filled with the hope of Jesus Christ rescue. Amen? And we're going to celebrate God assembling us together uh, under the banner of his love. But one of the things we're going to do, I wanted to give you a week to prepare for so that you're not caught off guard. This doesn't count for my sermon time now, all right? Um, that we've never done this before, and we're, our staff is really excited about this. At the end of the service on that day, before we go in the back and, and, and share a catered meal together, we're going to give everybody an opportunity to think, I, don't, I know it's, it's going to be almost February, but to think about this year, um, to think about what do you want to see the Lord do in your life. And we're going to ask you to do something that's really hard for human beings, especially if you're my type of personality, um, want you to reduce it to one word. How many of you have done that? There's, I guess there's kind of a movement, like what's your word for the year, right? And it's not just Christians, it's a lot of people that have a word for the year. And I've even talked to some of you, and you shared that with me, and we started thinking, like, you know what? Let's think of a word that summarizes, I would love, and I, I would love to see God do this, and I'm going to plead with him and entreat him in prayer this year. Lord, show me or do this for me. Uh, one of our staff members, I don't think she would care for me sharing, Diane, would you? Hers was all. Uh, it's hard for me, being from Arkansas, to say that the right way. A-W-E, okay? Not all, but all, like being blown away. Just being filled with uh, incredulity and just astonishment and wonder and marvel. That's her word for the year. Like, Lord, show me 
bring me to a place where I am in awe of you again, like I was at the beginning. And so no doubt that'd be her word. But I want you to think about, and listen, we're not going to twist your arm and force you to do it, but we're going to invite you. We're going to present you with a cool little card. You can write your name on it, and you can write that word down, and we're going to invite you to come down after the service. The band will be playing, the worship team, not the band. It's the same thing, but anyway. Uh, invite you to put those in, in a basket, and she's going to make this really cool uh, prayer request kind of thing for us and share it with us, find a way to share it with everybody. So do that. Before I forget this announcement, for all the things that happen on a Sunday morning, be thinking about the word that you want to bring with you next week and share it with the church. And I think it will be kind of like a mosaic of, of uh, just a mosaic of, of wonder, like how God is uniting our hearts. What are we all praying for together? And don't share it with anybody else, all right? You can ask your kids to participate. It'd be, it'd be really interesting. So uh, with that being said, let's jump into our sermon today and, and let's pray. Pray with me, okay? Lord Jesus, we are here because of you. We're not here bringing our own ideas about who you are and what you require of us or what Christianity should be or what we want it to be or what we want our life to look like. Lord, you have already revealed all of that to us. And the task that you call us to today is to realign our life, our thoughts, our ambitions, our hopes, our dreams with what you have revealed about yourself and about your will for our lives. And that is not an easy thing to do. And, and we're powerless, Lord, to do it in all reality. But you're not. You, you are the sovereign Lord. You are the sovereign ruler. And we can trust you. You've proven yourself over and over to be faithful, to be good, to be kind, to be wise, to be compassionate, to be understanding. As Craig said, to meet us where we're at, to know when we've failed and we need strength, to know when we're weak, when we're weary, when we need rest, when we need hope. And Lord, maybe we're all there today. Maybe we just need to be filled with hope again, Lord, like a gas tank that's been running on fumes all week. Please fill us up with hope, Lord. Send us back out on mission for you to live for your glory, to leverage our lives in a way that intersects with people who are outsiders, who are hurting whose lives may be a dumpster fire and a train wreck, and they need the hope that only you can offer through your son. So would you please fill us up with that hope and then send us out, Lord, to reach others with it. I pray in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, look, last week was the first message in this introduction, and if you're like me, one of my pet peeves is, uh, I know I've been at this church for the last eight years, but if you show up randomly at a church and they say, we're in the middle of a series, part six, and you think, oh, wonderful, I'm going to be so clueless. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm just going to real briefly make this where if this is your first time to hear or first time to ever be at this church, this could be a standalone message. So here we go. A.W. Tozer has a quote, you've probably heard it if you've walked in Christian circles and read Christian literature. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I love that quote, and it's true. It's true. When you hear the word God or Lord or even Jesus or Yahweh or Adonai or whatever word uh, that projects your thoughts upward to the divine... What is it that comes into your mind? What image, what thoughts, what adjectives, what characteristics, what attributes? Tozer, I think, rightly says, that's the most important thing about you. It says a lot about who you are and what kind of life you're living. And then he goes on to say this a little bit later in that same paragraph. He says, worship is pure or base, and he means weak or strong. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So I want to present you with a question. I want to put a question to you today. Do you have high thoughts of God? 
What kind of thoughts of God do you have? Are they like your thoughts? Do you think of God as, well, he's like me? God is just like me, because there's a warning about that in the book of Psalms. God says, you thought I was like you, but I'm unlike you. You're a sinner, and I'm holy. You're unjust, and I'm just. You're unrighteous, and I'm righteous. And you're limited, and I'm unlimited. God is is revealing himself to us in the Bible, and he's saying something very majestic and and galvanizing if, if we listen to it and pay attention. He's saying, I'm on a totally other level than you, and he wants our thoughts to be accurate and to be high and to be lofty, and then our lives can come into alignment with that. Um, This remote is doing the same thing. No, there we go. I got it. So, do you entertain high or low thoughts about God? Last week was introduction, and all we did was we defined sovereignty. As it's talked about in Romans 9 through 11, the, the sovereign, supreme rule and control of God, that's what the word means. It's, it's a word that you may find describing a monarch, a king, a queen, a ruler, a prince, somebody that sits on a throne, somebody who has jurisdiction or some type of uh, political uh, reign or, or rule or control over an area. That's the word we use. It means above all, when we talk about God's sovereignty, it means without equal. It means unique. It means self-existing, completely free and unencumbered to act, having ultimate authority. That means when God wants to do something, nobody can stop him from doing it. He's authorized. You ever seen somebody doing something, you wonder like, man, that person, they have no right to do it. What are they doing? They're not. People have actually said that to me. Weird things happen to me when I'm driving. I'll come up on a, a cone where it's not supposed to be, and I'll get out and I'll move it, and I hear this voice inside my head like, are you authorized to do that? Can you do that? Are you a, are you a worker for the Florida Department of Highway and... And uh, I'm not authorized, but here's, here's the thing. God is authorized to do whatever he wants, right? He doesn't need a permission slip. God doesn't need a hall pass. He doesn't need a, a, a consultation committee to ask like, hey, what do you guys think? Let me, I need a sounding board here. How's this hit you? God doesn't need that. God doesn't even have to inform us what he's going to do, but he's so gracious. He's so kind. He's so compassionate. He stoops to our level, and he often accommodates us and tells us what he's going to do. He sends messengers. He sends prophets. But the sovereignty of God means that he doesn't have to consult us. He has absolute control of time, eternity. He rules over every molecule, every particle of dust, every creature, every human, every animal, every angel, everything visible and invisible, God has ultimate control and authority over. That's quite a thought. That's a sweeping thought. If you think about it, Is that what is controlling your view of God, that he's ultimately sovereign, he's other than me? He sits enthroned above all things. Those attributes separate the God of the Bible from really all other religions, all other worldviews, all other truth claims and ideologies. And God's not trying to keep that a secret at all. He wants us to know, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, this is why you can trust me. You know, one of the verses I've shared... I've probably shared this with every person in here who knows me at some point. If I've known you, known you for an extended period of time and you've had a hard affliction or a severe trial in your life, I guarantee you I've texted you Isaiah 26, 3, and it says this of God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed or stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is a tremendous promise, and I recommend it to you. You can memorize that, or you can text somebody to it. Uh, text that to somebody who's going through a hard trial. It's, it's a, a very galvanizing verse. 
if you think about the truth claim uh, in, in that verse, the promise that God is making, it's stunning what would be required to make good on that. I'm going to keep you in perfect peace if you fix your mind on me. How, is a, how can somebody do that? I could never make that claim to you. Hey, think about how heretical that would be. Me as your pastor saying, hey, hey, listen, guys, I'm going to keep you in perfect peace if you fix your mind on Tommy because you trust in Tommy. <laughs> how silly and ridiculous and heretical and dangerous would that be? But God says that, and God's able to make good on that. And I'm sure if you have believed that verse and put the weight of your trial and affliction and tragedy on it, you found him to be capable. God's very capable hands is where he entrusts us, right? God's not keeping this a secret. In Isaiah chapter 44, we're going to get into Romans 9 through 11. But in Isaiah 44, God says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. You know what God's saying there? He's confronting his people who have fallen into idolatry and spiritual harlotry. They have gone after the Baals and the Moleks and the Philistine gods and goddesses that aren't really gods. There's demons behind them. And God is, he is serving them notice. He's saying, look, you're going through heartache. You're going through trial. And your little false gods and goddesses that fall over the car damages you make, they're not able to help you. Because they're not real, they're dead. They don't speak, they don't walk, they're lame, they're deaf, and you're just like them. And what God is basically saying is this. He's saying, if you think your gods are powerful, if you think they can rival me and challenge me, then why don't you go ask Baal and Molech to tell you the future? And then God says, that's what I thought. There is no rock like me. That's an amazing chapter. And God is proving his sovereignty by just prophecy, by predicting the future, by knowing What's going to happen? Because, listen, God controls future, the future. God controls history. If, if, if our lives in this world is like a, a, a great symphony of some kind, and often it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's out of tune and there's cognitive dissonance. But God would be the sovereign conductor that's composing the whole thing, right? He's carrying it out. Now the flutes, now the strings, now the percussions. And to us, it sounds out of tune and it looks whack. It looks like a dumpster fire. But God is sovereignly orchestrating all of history to its ultimate conclusion. That's the claim of the Bible, and it's not just in an isolated passage hidden over here. It's all over the place. God says, this is who I am. You can trust me. What other choice do you have? What other choice do you have? So, if God predicts the future with specificity and with accuracy, that's another demonstration of his, prof of his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. We don't have a sovereign plan, you and I don't, and here's why, because we're not sovereign people, <laughs> right? You have a plan. How many people in here have a plan for your life? How many, how many people in here would admit right now that plan has changed multiple times? Why did it change? Because you got some new information, right? <laughs> some major new information, some of you, right? Like, oh, all righty then, okay then, or, or trial and tragedy entered your life. Or there was a course correction, or I mean, endless contingencies and possibilities interrupted and, and maybe derailed, or you had to do a course correction or realignment. Why? Because you're not sovereign. You can't control all of those things. But check this out, man. This is the mind-blowing thing. God is sovereign, and there are no contingencies or possibilities he hasn't thought of or worked into his sovereign plan. So God's plan's not going to change. 
If God's sovereign plan changed, that would render him what? Surprised, shocked. Oops, I didn't see that coming. God never says that. God's never surprised, and he's never shocked. There was a grieving father who lost his son, tragically, suddenly, shockingly, and his pastor told him this. And I understand, listen, I don't want to wag my finger or sound condescending, but his pastor thinking, oh goodness, I don't want that man to be bitter at God, so I better defend God. This is what he said to that grieving dad. He said, look, God had, can you fill in the blank? Nothing to do with this. That's what he told him. God had nothing to do with it. Then he said this. He said, God was just as surprised by this as you were. And you know what that dad told him? He said, why in the world, as my pastor, would you take away from me the one truth that is bringing sanity to me right now? That's the only rock I can, uh, that I can build my life on right now is that this wasn't a surprise to God. Because listen, if God didn't see this coming, if, if God was just as surprised by this fill-in-the-blank in your life, then guess what? God is going to be just as helpless as you are to help you pick up the pieces afterwards and put your life back together. That's why God's sovereignty is what I told you last week. Charles Spurgeon said, when you're going through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which you can lay your head. But so often for some people who maybe misunderstand it, it's not a pillow they lay their head on. It's a menacing, ominous, threatening claim that they shake their fist at. And listen, I understand that. Everybody in here has a history, and probably at some point you've encountered some type of teaching on this, and it was either good or bad. It was either balanced or unbalanced, overemphasized, underemphasized, biblical or unbiblical, right? But listen, every major doctrine in the Bible, I can promise you Satan attacks it. And if he can't pull you back and blind you from it completely, where you've never heard of it, what he'll do is he'll shove you so hard forward, you'll overemphasize it, it'll become unbalanced. You'll be, like a, you'll be like a bird with one wing. Have you ever seen a bird with one wing flying? It's not pretty. They go in circles. Or it'll be like a boat with, with one oar, right? Or a hoverboard with one wheel. Uh, we get unbalanced sometimes in our doctrine. For example, and this happens with major doctrines in the Bible. For example, uh, this is a fancy word for you, okay? Hypostatic union of Jesus. That's talking about his divinity and his humanity. Jesus Christ is both fully man and he is fully God. That is a beautiful doctrine that's part of the Trinity, and it's a mystery. It's an absolute mystery. Nobody can really explain it, explain it or understand it fully, but the Bible presents it as truth. Now, do you know where men and women have gotten into a lot of trouble? Where they try to, where they try to wrap their finite mind around that infinite, minute, that infinite mystery, and they end up with one or. It's like, well, we really got to emphasize that Jesus was God here, and yeah, maybe he was man too, and we start like going in circles. And the same thing happens with God's sovereignty. Because when we hear about God's sovereignty, if, if we're not careful, we begin to uh, get unbalanced with our view of our responsibility. We say, look, if God's sovereign, then man, let's chill out. You know, everybody on Mount Everest was once a highly motivated person, so maybe calm down a little bit. Something like that, right? Let's just calm. God's sovereign. Let's just calm down. Sit back, rest on the oars, and take it easy, man. Sarah. We don't need to get all excited about all the wrong stuff going on in the world, the unbelievers that haven't heard the gospel. God's going God's to gonna take care of that, man. Our responsibility is not maybe what we thought it was. And so people sit back, and they're, they grow indifferent and cold and apathetic. Or maybe some people, man, they latch on to that. God is sovereign, and I'm just like them. And they get arrogant, and they're teaching on that, and maybe even abusive, um, 
yeah, this teaching has led to lots of imbalances, and I believe it's because it's such an important, stabilizing doctrine that God loves to proclaim. And so that's why the Apostle Paul, I think the very way he talks about it in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, he's going to apply God's sovereignty to, to the ultimate place where, where we get uncomfortable, and it's this, in the salvation of humanity. Why is it that some people are saved and some people are not saved? Maybe some people that grow up in the same culture, under the same teaching, the same environment, the same exposure to the gospel, who had the same personality. One person repents of their sin, embraces Jesus as Lord, asks for his forgiveness, and becomes a follower, becomes a disciple of Jesus, and somebody else does not. Paul is dealing with with that. He's dealing with it on a national basis with Israel and with Gentiles, but the application can come individually to us as we ask the question like, man, it seems so random to me that some people believe and some people don't believe, and it just makes me question, what's going on? And so the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is going to answer this question and uh, this teaching about God's sovereignty. It's the only thing that can both embolden us and fill us with courage that God is sovereignly in control and he's sitting on his throne but it can also keep us humble at the same time it, it, it's the doctrine that can fill you with hope but it can also keep you sensitive that you can feel the evil and the suffering around you and you can be a compassionate person not cold detached unfeeling and indifferent so the reason that these chapters are here i just briefly touched on this last week uh a lot of people think 9, 10, and 11, it's just weird that those are even in the book of Romans. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about justification. He's talking about God's eternal security of his believers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the end of chapter 8. Uh, and then he picks up in chapter 12. Now, in a lot of these mercies, here's how your life should change. And look, but what's, what's with 9, 10, and 11? It seems odd and out of place. Uh, Paul is dealing with an important objection that many people might have when they heard Romans 8. Romans 8 is full of amazing promises, right? Once you're in Christ, you're there forever. Once you belong to God, uh, you belong to him forever. You are his and he is yours. And nothing can separate you at all. And everything that actually happens in your life, uh, if you love God, all those things are, are happening according to his plan. And it's working out for your good, right? To those who love God, we know, Paul says, we don't guess, we don't think, we don't, we don't uh, uh, just render an opinion here. We know that all things work together for good to do, for those who love God. Paul knows that there's going to be some Jews reading this and hearing this epistle taught in the church at Rome. And they're going to say, so you're telling me that when God chooses a person uh, and elects a person unto eternal life, that he is able to keep them and promises to keep them forever, Right? Paul says, that's right. And they say, well, what about the Jewish nation then? Because God made those same promises to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, to the ethnic nation of Israel. And yet, when this was written, by and large, the Jews had rejected Jesus. They weren't embracing the gospel. And that's a big problem for Paul to have to deal with. And I'm thankful that Paul doesn't dodge that. Aren't you thankful, man, that Christianity doesn't dodge hard questions? It tackles them head on. I mean, Paul devotes three whole chapters to this. This is very important. He wants to uh, explain sometimes God does things, allows great evil to happen so that he can bring about greater good. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 is kind of a defense of why the Israelites have rejected God. And in that defense, Paul gets into the nitty-gritty of 
election and sovereignty and predestination, things that sometimes make us uncomfortable, but we're not going to shy away from it because this is in the Word of God, and the Bible says about itself, uh, all Scripture is profitable, right? It's all profitable. It's all good for us, so we're not going, we're not going to dodge this at all. Man, I did something I've never done, guys. And I know everybody keeps warning me to not do this, but I didn't start my clock. So, oh, no, see, you groan, see? See, that was a test there. <laughs> um, so, here's, here's the outline, picking up from last week, okay? I didn't, I didn't finish it, but that's okay. I, I thought it would be better uh, to stop last week and then continue today. Here we go. Did the right one. So here are the rules of engagement, or you can call this the barometer test. How do we know that we're thinking about God's sovereignty in a way that's clear, in a way that's biblical, in the way that the Apostle Paul intended? Oh, here's the rules of engagement here. Number one, has it weakened your witness? Number two, is it based on the word? Number three, does it lead you to worship? I'm not going to rehash all of the first point, but I do want to read the passage that we get it from, because here's the Apostle Paul, and he's about to talk about something that is tragic. Paul is a Jew. He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. And he's writing about his brothers, ethnically speaking, his Israelites, his Hebrews. They have, by and large, rejected Jesus. But Paul knows God is sovereign, even in the rejection. But still, listen to the way that Paul talks about the unbelief of these people. And let's check our hearts and see if we claim to embrace this teaching about God's sovereignty, what our response is to people around us who, who don't believe. Do we say, well, it's part of God's sovereign plan. They don't believe. That's, that's on God. You know, I'm done. Listen to what Paul says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There's your barometer test right now. You say, well, that's just Paul. He's just saying that. Well, check this out. Next verse. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's pretty amazing to me. That here's a man who believes that everything that is happening is part of God's sovereign plan. And yet, the right response is for Paul to have deep, agonizing sorrow over the unbelief of other people. And even though Paul has given special revelation, he understood God's sovereign plan. Listen, I would go even further. Jesus Christ, do you think Jesus knew God's sovereign plan? Man, if he, if he didn't, we're in trouble, aren't we? Jesus knew God's sovereign plan, and yet, yet, he extended his hands over the city of Jerusalem, and he wept and lamented. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have wanted to extend myself to you and gather you up as a mother hen does her chicks, but you were not willing. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's Jesus who in one sentence can say, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the arrogant and the prudent and revealed them unto babes, for, for such was your good pleasure. And on the other hand, Jesus is lamenting over the unbelief and the rejection and the de denial of his people. And man, I think there's a lesson there in balance for us. Yes, we embrace God's sovereignty. Yes, it's the pillow on which we lay our head, but it is not an excuse to stay cold detached, indifferent, and apathetic to suffering, to evil, to rejection, to sin, to unbelief, especially of the unbelievers around us. In fact, I told you last week, William, William Carey, uh, he was embracing this doctrine, 
and he put a question to an older pastor at a meeting. He said, look, what's the responsibility of the church to carry out the Great Commission? And remember what the guy said? He pointed his finger in Carrie's face, and he said, young man, you sit down. He said, you sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And all three things that that guy told William Carey were wrong. God never said, sit down to us when there's a task to be accomplished with evangelism. What did he say? Go, get up, right? And he never said, wait until God wants to reach people. Does God want to reach people right now? Yes, then don't wait. We already know. We already know God's told us to go. We just need to ask where and to whom, and to whom right? And the third thing he said that was wrong, man, what a terrible pastor. God protect us from terrible pastors. Third thing he says was, when God's ready to reach the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. <clears throat> wrong again. Listen, guys, God is sovereign, and can God reach unbelievers by writing the gospel in the clouds or sending an angelic cohort? Can God do that if he wanted to? Yes, he could. Don't ever put God in a box. But what has God shown us uh, that his will is regarding the great commission and the message about God's rescue going into all the world? Who does he please to use? Us, flawed messengers. We're all flawed, man. And listen, God must get greater glory for himself using weak broken vessels like us that are filled with the treasure of the gospel, right? For some reason, it gives the message street cred, I guess, that are like, oh, they're a broken vessel, but God's rescuing them. Maybe there's something to this message. God wants to use flawed instruments like you and me to reach unbelievers. That's plan A. There is no plan B. God's church being his extension, his hands and feet, is plan A. So everything he told William Carey was wrong, and thank God William Carey didn't listen to him. I told you last week he went to India for 41 years without furlough, and he brought about social reform. He made 700 converts, and he's called the father of modern-day mission for Protestants. He inspired a whole slew of people who gave up their life and went hard-to-reach places where the heathen and the pagans were antagonistic and even hostile. His example inspired Jim Elliott and his four friends who were speared to death in the 1950s. Anyway, I could go on and on about that. That was point one. Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then the very next verse, verse six, he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Don't you love that? Paul says, I have unceasing sorrow and anguish in my heart about the unbelief of my brothers, but God's word hasn't failed. God's still going to keep his promise. And that's what chapters nine, 10, and 11 are all about. In fact, the next thing that that the Apostle Paul says, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I went that far. I, I didn't, but I'll read it here. If, if you're in Romans 9, look at, look at verse 5, the very end of it. The very next thing that Paul says, uh, my kinsmen according to the flesh, verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. He says Jesus is God over all, who is blessed forever, amen. So right off the bat, he introduces this idea. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Christ is God, and he's over all. This is part of his sovereign plan. He's going to show us eventually that he's going to use the grafting in of the Gentiles. Thank God. How many people in here are Gentiles? If you don't know, you probably are, all right? Had God not worked out this sovereign plan where he grafted in the Gentiles, uh, you and I wouldn't be here today. 
And he's going to use the grafting in of the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous and bring them back in. It's an incredible plan. And listen, no human being could have ever conceived of this. When we think about our lives and our religion, right, and our ideas and our worldview, we would have never written about a sovereign being who sits enthroned above it all, who's limitless and has no boundaries and doesn't ask our leave of anything. We wouldn't have done that. This, to me, these three chapters are yet again proof that the Bible is divine. If we would have gotten our, gotten our hands into this, we would have edited it, right? We would have said, now look, you may think that this is saying that God is sovereign, but don't misunderstand me. Of course, God's going to respect our free will and everything, right? And that's the major problem that people have, and some people even I saw visibly sat up. Like, what? We do have a free will, though. And we're going to talk about all these things, especially later in chapter 9. But I want, I want to show you something, uh, because we might as well get it out there and talk about it. It's a 500-pound elephant in the room, right? Do we or do we not have a free will, and does God impose his will on ours? I want to show you a passage from, from Genesis chapter 20. I just want to read it to you, okay? And, and this is when God, you can turn to it if you want to, it's in Genesis this is in my Bible reading plan, and the fun thing about this, fun, fun's the wrong word probably, the exhilarating thing for me is when you get introduced to this doctrine, how many places you see it in the Bible that you, that you never saw it before, and it encourages you. So I want you, to, I want you to check this out, okay? This is right after God made a promise to Abraham. He said, look, I've chosen you. I'm calling your family out of all the families and out of all the nations and ethnic groups in the world. I'm going to call you out. And I'm going to set my name and affection upon you. And you are going to be a blessing to all the nations. And through you, uh, the seed of the Redeemer is going to come. And then Abraham and Sarah are old. And, you know, they're past the age where they can have children. And God makes this radical promise. You're going to have a son. And through him, all the nations are going to be blessed. And it's so ridiculous that his wife, Sarah, laughs. She's like, ha ha, that's funny. Shall I have you know, pleasure and a child in my old age. And then the very next chapter, we, we read this. Abraham and Sarah are sojourning. Chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. So here's the deal. Abraham's wife is beautiful. She doesn't look her age. Uh, I'm sure if we could find out her secrets, we could really, you know, market some type of facial cream or something. Anyway, she was beautiful, and Abraham knows that, and it scares him to death because he's going into a territory where he doesn't believe the fear of God is upon the place. And so he tells a half-truth. He says, look, do me this favor. When the men see you and they're like, wow, just say that you're my sister. If you say you're my wife, they'll kill me. So just say you're my sister. So that's what she does. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, and that's a Philistine city, it would have been a pagan city, okay, sent and took Sarah. So, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Here's a beautiful woman that God just promised would, would miraculously father this child of promise through whom all the blessings of the coming Messiah would flow. And now we got this pagan king who sees her and desires her, and he takes her. This is not good, man. This whole plan of God's could derail. But God came to a beam. But God. Man, that, you could just do a study on that throughout the whole Bible, and it'd blow your mind. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. And I got the verse. Let me find the verse here. No, it's not, it's not there. 
Here we, here we go. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. You ever had a dream like that? <laughs> Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Uh-oh. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. That means, thank God, they hadn't been intimate, okay? So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Now check this out, guys. Verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, question. Can God do that? Answer, God did that. <laughs> can God do that? What's the answer? Yes, he can. Has God done that? Yes. Another question. If God did it once, could he do it a million times? Yes. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes. Now, I want you to just think about this. This is what blows my mind and leads me into worship. What would it take for God to do that? Man, I, I, I want to be careful the way I say this. So here is a pagan king who saw a beautiful woman and instantly had an urge and a desire that he wanted to accomplish. So he took Sarah to himself. Now, what do you think he had planned for that night? Not to just go to bed and say, I'll get right on this tomorrow, probably, right? Who, who is in control? Who's in control of our urges and our instincts and our impulses, whether they're fallen or noble and righteous? Who's in control of that? Well, God is. Who's in control of our thoughts when we go to bed, our dreams? God is. I've often thought when I've looked on my past, there, there are temptations that I faced even before I was a Christian. And I look back and I just marvel. It's like there is no reasonable explanation for how I was delivered from that temptation. It certainly wasn't because I feared God. I look back and like huge, like a massive tragic mistakes that in all reality I should have made. There's no reason for it because listen, here's what happens in temptation. Desire and opportunity meet and then bad things happen, right? I look back and I will see like, okay, that desire was there. I definitely was wanting to be up to no good, but God took all the opportunities away, right? I'm going to go out and do me some sinning. And God's like, no, no, not tonight, you're not. Or, or the opportunity was there, and people are like, bro, there you go, wide open door. And you're like, nah, I don't know, I'm just not feeling it. And you look back and you're like, what in the world was going on? And you read a passage like this, and you're like, it was the integrity of my heart. And God's like, no, it was actually me. It was actually me. I kept you from doing something that would have derailed my sovereign plan. I kept you from it. And I do it all the time. I do it every day. If God showed us all the restraints, the merciful restraints he puts upon our life, it would blow our mind. And we'd fall down and worship him and, and say, thank God, I'm a lot worse than I thought I was, and you're a lot better than I thought you were, right? That's one application out of hundreds of places we can go in the Bible. When I was a brand new Christian, one of the first Bible studies I ever, I ever did, and I found it the other day, and I laughed my head off. Because like every new teacher, you know what the Bible study was? It was a million Bible verses. That's all it was. And God bless the people who sat through, through those early lessons. But I went through all the Bible, and I found every verse I could find on God's sovereign control, and I wrote it down. And it was like a 50-page Word document. <laughs> and I got to the book of Job, and I stopped. And I'm like, there's no reason to go any further, because this is like chapter 42, verse 2. I quoted it last week. Um, 
Job says, now I know, now I know that, that basically you're in control and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And there's a section in Job, and I want to commend it to you. If you're looking for a good Lord's Day meditation, chapters 38 through 42 of Job, God is confronting Job. Job is like, why is this suffering happening? Why did my children die? Why am I sick? Why am I covered with boils? And he's righteous. Job's righteous. He didn't sin with his lips, but he's, he's asking God hard questions, and God one day shows up in a tornado, and he asks Job questions. Have you guys ever read this section? It's 84 questions that God asked Job. He says, you've asked me questions. Now, put your man clothes on. I'm about to ask you some questions. And one of the first questions he asked was, where were you, buddy, when I created the world? I don't remember consulting you for wisdom, Job. I don't remember you being there with a measuring tape and a pencil behind your ear saying, great, God, now, now we need to do this. But one of the questions uh, that he asked, it just blows me away every time I read it, is in chapter 38, and check it out. He says, and this is like question number 80, I don't know what it is. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, it's garment. And thick darkness, it's swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You know, when I moved to Florida, I had never seen the ocean in my life. I was 23. Crazy. I was locked. I was landlocked, right, in Arkansas. And I came, and I was just blown away at the power. Even though Florida has little waves, mostly, I was blown away at the power of these waves. And every time I read this passage, it reminds me, like, hey, anytime you think that you're in control, right, that that you have some of maybe the same power and jurisdiction God does, do this. Get your car. Get on 44 East. Drive to New Smyrna. About tide time. When is that, by the way? Anybody live on the beach here? I don't know, four o'clock? Yeah, all right. Go whenever the tide's creeping in, walk down to the beach, and and command the waves. Seriously, say, hey, hey, stop, right there, stop, and and see what happens. See what happens. That verse is amazing. Did that blow you away? God says, hey, Job, why don't you go down to the ocean and, and tell the proud waves you can't go any further than here? And we think that's just nice and cute, but what about when a tsunami hits? Or what about when a hurricane comes? Man, that becomes super relevant and practical, doesn't it? Or a tornado, and the finger of God is controlling tragedies, and it's mind-blowing. I can't even get my cat to listen to me, let alone the ocean, right? Or my kids. <laughs> I've told you before, if you think you're, so- you're sovereign, uh, <laughs> try to stay awake for a week. Yeah, go ahead and do that. Stay awake. There's a reason why we curl up in the fetal position and suck our thumbs for eight hours every night. It's a reminder from God. It's a gracious reminder. He gives to his beloved sleep, Psalm 127 says, to remind us, hey, you can sleep, you can take a nap because I'm up here and it's all according to plan, my plan. That's, that's the rub sometimes, right? So we're already well into the second point here. You guys know that, right? The first point was, the first point was, does it weaken your witness? And the second point is this, is it based on the word? Is it based on the word? This is what Jerry Bridges said. I quoted you this last week. He said, don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. I love the way that that quote is phrased because when we think about, okay, I know God's powerful. I acknowledge that. I know he's amazing and he he can make bad things into good things. Uh, 
So God's sovereign in, in, in the way that I think about it. And Jerry Bridges is saying, don't trust the way you think about it. Go to the Word. And I love what the Apostle Paul does. If you read these three chapters, woven throughout chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, one of the most difficult and challenging doctrines in the Bible, Paul quotes probably more Scripture there in those three chapters than he does any other place. And what's Paul, what's Paul showing us by his example? I'm going to think about a very mysterious and challenging doctrine, and I better make sure that the way I'm thinking about it can be verified from Scripture and can line up with the Word of God. Because I can't trust myself to think about God's sovereignty without some type of guidance. And God's Word is what He used. And and the quotes He gives here, did I put that up there? The quotes He gives, just in chapter 9 alone, is is so impressive in its breadth and, and width, because He quotes... David, he quotes Isaiah multiple times. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Elijah. He quotes Moses. He quotes the patriarchs. And Paul, he's, he's brilliant, man, because he's saying, look, I could tell you God is sovereign. I'm going to actually show you God is sovereign. I'm going to go back and into Israel's redemptive history, and I'm going to show you very specific ways that God was demonstrating his sovereignty when it came to carrying out his redemptive history and his salvation history. And I want to ask you a question. Are you following suit? When you think about difficult doctrines, so often what we do is we fall into the philosophical or we get into the psychological. And look, I'm not against those things. I told you last week. Philosophy, just the word means love of wisdom. I love wisdom, don't you? And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In psychology, that's just a fancy word for studying human behavior. And listen, psychology can be a great servant. Because if you're observing human beings, you're going to notice trends and patterns and habits that can probably help you help them, right? But those are servants. They're not masters. I even put some stuff together. You, you may laugh at this. This was just this week, some things I saw in my, uh, in, my, in my news app on my computer. Can you guys read that? I can't. <laughs> What's it say at the bottom? Scientists are one step closer to learning how to reverse aging. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not at all. They're not ever going to reverse aging. How do I know that? Does, anybody, does everybody here know they're never going to reverse aging? I can promise you that. I don't care what they do. They're not going to reverse aging. How do I know? Because Genesis chapter 3, what happened? Death. If you reverse aging, you never die. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, I could go on and on about that. That's, you already know that. Here's something else I saw. This was in the Atlantic. So, so that was Time Magazine. Here's the Atlantic. What the longest study on human happiness found is the key to a good life. So the Atlantic Magazine is going to tell you guys what the key to a good life is. Are you interested to know what it is? I was. I read it. And you know what? Some things they touch on is like human relationships, flourishing human relationships lead to a happy life. So, okay, I'll grant that. That's, that's part of it. But let me ask you a question now. What does what flourishing human relationships look like? The, the Atlantic, I didn't find an article on that. <laughs> How do you find flourishing human relationships in a world that's fallen and people that are narcissistic and self-centered? How does that work? Well, I got another resource for you that can, that can tell you that. It's the Bible, right? Here's one other thing. What archaeologists tell us about the real Jesus? Now, look, guys, I love archaeology. There's been some incredible discoveries over the years that, that have validated what we already know is in the Bible, but I'm not looking 
Archaeology is not the problem. It's archaeologists. It's human beings that already have presuppositions, and they bring those presuppositions. It's a filter when they do their, doing their dig and excavations. So um, how about this? How archaeology always confirms the real Jesus. That's the truth. That's what archaeology actually does. So the point that I'm making is that second point is the way you think about God's sovereignty, is it based on the Word of God? Or is it based on your own fallen reasoning and imagination and what you want God to be like? What you think is fair? That's the big one. That's when the red lights should start going around because all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about grace, right? So is it based on the Word? Paul says over and over and over again, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then the last thing, of course, we, we touched on last week, and we'll just finish again with this. Does it lead you to worship? What's the, the thing that the Apostle Paul ends with? He says here in verses 33 through 36, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable, and that means past finding out His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's the three litmus test, I guess you could say, the barometers for how do you know you're thinking about these doctrines of God's sovereignty, especially as it relates to salvation. How do you know you're relating them the, them the right way and thinking about them the right way? Does it weaken your witness? Is it based on God's word and not your own fallen reasoning? And does it ultimately lead you to worship? This is not some clinical, you're not wearing a lab coat and dissecting a doctrine without your emotions being involved. This is Paul falling down at the conclusion of saying, man, this is incredible what God has done. His grand redemptive plan is going to ultimately lead to more people being saved, not less. And he's going to graft the Jews back in because they're going to be provoked to jealousy by the Gentiles. And then Paul falls down and says, man... Who in the world would ever written a plan like this? Only, only a sovereign, majestic, glorious God. And we fall down and we acknowledge He's sovereign. And we align our plan with His plan. Uh, and we give Him thanks. That's what this leads to. Listen, this is a cycle. Good, rich theology always leads to worship. And worship always leads to mission. Right? Always. It's not cold. It's not detached. I think it was John Piper that said this. He said, God basically says in these chapters... Uh, I will not be analyzed. I will be adored. That's the end goal. It's like to put down your pen and worship, right? That's what this is all about. Paul David Tripp said this. Can you guys see that? Well, I can't. It's a good quote, though. He's, he's basically saying God's plan is always going to be better than your plan. And look, I, I, I said last week, here's the problem. Here's the problem. With, with God's sovereignty. We think, you know what, man, I just, that, that just bristles against me that somebody else is in control of my life. I don't like that. That bothers me. That leaves me unsettled. But listen, guys, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Are you a trustworthy person? <laughs> now, don't answer that out loud. Are, are you benevolent enough and wise enough and powerful enough to know what's best for you? You're not. God does. So, Jackie Hill Perry said this, if God is holy, God cannot sin. And if God cannot sin, God cannot sin against you. And if God cannot sin against you, 
doesn't that make him the most trustworthy and reliable being in the universe? Yes, it does. So whose sovereign plan would you rather be uh, playing out in this world? Yours or God's? The most trustworthy and reliable being in the world who ultimately every single thing he brings or allows or decrees into your life is going to be for your ultimate good and for your ultimate joy. That means every betrayal, every tragedy, every sickness, every death, every personal loss, every severe trial, everything that God brings into your life is going to be for your ultimate joy and for your ultimate good. And you would have never planned those things because that's just not how we operate. We do all we can to escape pain, right? But God is able to work pain into his sovereign plan. Even the, even, even the pain of seeing people that you love and you want to know Christ, some of those people reject and they're responsible for that. Paul's going to talk about that a little bit later in this chapter. So that's me finishing the outline. Thank you for, for being patient today, guys. Let's pray. And uh, I, I want to I close, close our message today by asking you a question, okay? Have you given yourself to this sovereign being whom you can trust? Have you put yourself in his hands? Have you said, you know what? What an amazing being. What an incredible sovereign plan he has. And, and I want to be on the right side of that. I want to give myself to him. I, w- I want to be forgiven. I want to belong to him. Have you done that? Is there a time in your life you can say, you know what? I acknowledged I'm a sinner. And God could rightly punish me. And, and he could send me to hell for all eternity. And he, would have, and he would have been just and he would have been right. God didn't even have to reveal the gospel to me that he sent Jesus to die for my sins. But he did. God's been so gracious to show to you what many people never see and to put into your hearing what many people never hear. Have you responded to that in repentance and faith? You think about that today as as we close and we have a prayer team in the back. Hallie, you come. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for the power and the sovereign control we see exhibited in these chapters. And this is just the very beginning. Thank you that that we could take as an introduction the the barometer test that Paul gives us. I pray that nobody in here would ever grow cold and indifferent and detached from unbelievers or for people who are struggling and in pain and suffering. And I pray, Lord, that we would never let our thoughts uh, get derailed and go outside the boundaries of Scripture. And I pray, Lord, as we think about these things, it would lead us into deeper worship and adoration and affection. Our hearts would be filled with gratitude It would galvanize us, Lord, and stabilize and strengthen us to know these things are true. This is the God to whom we belong. This is the God who has rescued us. This is the God who has invited us to be a part of his sovereign plan in reaching the nations for Jesus. I pray these things, Lord, for everyone here in the name of Jesus. Amen.